want to welcome you all to our 5% webinar co-hosted by the African Alliance, which I represent. My name is Maaza Siyum, and I am the Partnerships Lead for the African Alliance. We're co-hosting this with the Health Justice Initiative and the People's Health Movement. This is the third in a series of webinars. The first one, which I hope some of you attended, was focused on greed so there we were talking about the greed of the pharmaceutical companies and the hubris of the countries in the global north that were hoarding vaccines and blocking mechanisms for us to have access to more vaccines in Africa. The second one, led by the People's Health Movement, focused on divides within African countries. So they're talking about the urban-rural divide, the other divides within populations. And this third one on solidarity was asked for by our members at the People's Vaccine Alliance Civil Society Group across Africa, really focusing on solidarity. So we've spoken about greed. We've spoken about some of the divides in our countries. Greed, now that was focusing on the global north and the pharmaceutical companies, the Western pharmaceutical companies, and now really talking about the African solidarity that we need to move the vaccine equity forward. So that's what we'll be speaking about today. We'll let people keep joining, but please put any questions you have in the chat. And thank you to those of you who have already sent in some questions. I know that uh, when people send questions in advance, it's because there's much excitement about the amazing speakers that we have. So I'd like to thank all of you for joining and I'll introduce you as we go through. But I want to start first with Dr. Gitinji from AMREF. He unfortunately will have to leave us after 20 minutes and he will be giving us kind of his view on Af African solidarity and vaccine inequity. But Dr. Gitinji, before I hand over to you, I just wanted to kind of lay the groundwork for people. Everybody who is in this panel in this webinar is probably already aware of some of the issues that we are facing as Africans. But I think I need to remind people that at the moment, only 7% of Africans have been fully jabbed. This is one year after the vaccination program started in the UK. So December 8th marks the one year anniversary since that very joyous occasion when that grandmother, I think it was in Cornwall in the UK, to much applause and people were tearing up. Even I'm embarrassed to say that I was quite emotional myself because I thought it was such a moment of hope and inspiration. But here we are a year later with only 7% of Africans fully jabbed. This in comparison to 68% in the UK um, and 76% in Canada, which I saw Dr. Chubutunji, one of our panelists here, referring to as the hoarder in chief. So the hoarder in chief has fully jabbed 76% of its population, and we in Africa are still only at 7%. Also want to remind people that the number of people in the UK who've had their third booster jab is almost the same as the total number of people fully vaccinated across all low-income countries. Um, and just to remind people, again, I've seen you, um, Dr. Gitinji, talking about this and reminding people about this on CNN, that Africa is a large and diverse continent. We have 1.3 billion people, 54 countries. So there's quite a bit of diversity within our country. Some countries have done quite well, especially the small island nations like Mauritius, which is at 72 percent. 
Um, also Morocco at 61%, which is amazing. On the other end of the spectrum, half of our African countries have fully jabbed fewer than 5% of their populations and 14 countries are still at below 2%. So that is the, the landscape in which we are holding this webinar and really looking to how we can build solidarity within our continent. So with that, Dr. Gitinji, we are so pleased to have you. I saw on Twitter that you were at another webinar this morning. You have to sneak off in 15 minutes for another one today. So I'll hand over to you for a few minutes. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, Maza for that introduction. And I hope you can actually see my presentation. I have other teams, you know, teams can be quite uh, distracting because I see chats coming through and yet I have left the meeting. Anyway, thank you very much. I am really glad to see uh, Mohammed here and uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Catherine. So I want to, uh, Maza, can you see my slide? Can you hear me? I want to proceed. Yes, I can see your slide and I can see you perfectly. Please go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. So the slides were not really my focus, but when you started speaking, I thought I may share one or two because you reflect on some issues that I thought can be very well depicted here. The first thing I want to say is that iniquities for vaccines are global and national. And uh, we must call out both. We must call out the global iniquities that have to do with a supply of commodities, but we must also call out the national inequities that have to do with lack of health, access to health services. That's really what it is. And that's the reason I wanted to share this and um, also reflect on this, that I didn't know that South Africa was so widely distributed across this, uh, this globe. Uh, every yellow country here has Omicron, so we don't understand why Omicron has been um, used to discriminate, um, stigmatize, one, uh, you know, uh, the South African countries, it is absolutely unacceptable and must be called out. I have called it out. Some people have come to me and said, you know, use very strong language. But yes, it is what it is. If it's racism, it needs to be called out because there's no reason why all these yellow countries don't have travel bans. Only the countries in Southern Africa have travel bans and we must call out those problems. Um, the thing I wanted to make on this one before I conclude on this slide is, to say that inequities are multiple, you have high-income, low-income country inequity, supply, uh, vaccine commodity availability, huge gradient, you've reflected on it, Maza. we don't have to go into the depth of that, and that's the purpose for our call uh, to end injustice, which is more about stop uh, the high-income countries, as Catherine says, hold in chief, stop holding, release the stockpiles, limit the boosters, more boosters have been given globally than vaccines have been given at primary vaccination in low-income countries. I won't see anyone with a study that shows what the incremental cost-effectiveness of a booster is versus the cost-effectiveness of primary vaccination. But of course, because again, the money for research and development is controlled exactly where the vaccines are controlled, this research is unlikely to come out. But now, because my colleague uh, Catherine Chobutangi is here with the PHRC, it will be interesting to see what is the documented cost effectiveness or incremental cost effectiveness on a, of a booster for somebody who's already received two doses versus the protection that avails when somebody receives one dose, primary vaccination. So we are calling for limits to boosters and yet the holders in chief continue to roll out boosters when actually we are grappling with vaccines in the continent and of course other areas that have uh, low income countries. The other layer of inequality 
or iniquity is rich and poor. You know, for me, I've had myself, my wife and my children vaccinated, whereas there's somebody in my country who is high risk, but lives in a rural county where health access is poor and has not had vaccination. I must also feel uh, responsible for that iniquity as well. And I must also call it out and see how that can be overcome. So that this is not a one dimensional. We call iniquity across. And finally, it's also urban to rural. And I wanted to show you the iniquity, the global iniquity is very clear on the upper graph here. And you can see it's like Africa has never, never had that there are actually COVID vaccines. It is still white, meaning very few people between zero to 20 per hundred by December 6th who have actually been vaccinated. Whereas most of Europe, North America and, um, you know, uh, and Asia are on the upper side uh, of vaccination. So that's, that kind of tells you, we don't have to go into depth. I think Maza already talked about the numbers. The one I wanted to also show you is this in-country iniquity. And the thing that we must call out very strongly is that the challenges we are having with vaccine uptake in sub-Saharan Africa, in low-income countries, is not about hesitancy. It is mapped very clearly. And again, I'll challenge Catherine to work with me to do some more data here uh, because she's more, uh, she's actually the researcher. I'm not. I just kind of look at data and try to understand it. Uh, to say that actually the uptake of vaccines is um, uh, inversely proportional to access to health services. Um, or directly proportional to access to health services, sorry. It's directly proportional to access to health services. And if you look at this chart from Kenya, what I've done is uh, overlaid some data on vaccine uptake onto a chart that was existing on a mean travel time for an individual from where they live to a facility that actually carries out vaccination, not COVID vaccination, general vaccination. Meaning that if you want DPT for your child, what is the mean travel time for you? If you want measles for your child, what's the mean travel time for you? And you can see if you ignore the red and the green line and you just follow uh, the other um, uh, data at the bottom, you will see that these counties, Kenya has 47 counties, these counties on this end, on the find, have a mean travel time to a vaccinating facility of almost three hours more than two hours, mean travel time. Whereas if you look at the beginning of the curve, we look at Nairobi, which is the capital city, they have a mean travel time of 20 minutes. And then if you now look at your overlay vaccine uptake, you will see that where there is actually a mean travel time of less than 20 minutes, the vaccine uptake in Nairobi is 40% for two doses. But where you have a mean travel time of more than two hours, vaccine uptake is less than 2%. So it is a health access issue. And this, if you mapped here access family planning, you'll find exactly the same pattern as vaccine uptake. If you mapped here DPT, you'll find the same. And this is where you're more likely to find zero dose children in this end where travel time is very high. So this must also be called out. And we must use this data to show that actually the challenge we are having is not hesitancy. It is access to supply, and then access to vaccination. And that access to vaccination is the same as absence of UHC, because where there is low universal coverage, low access to essential health services because of distance of facilities, lack of health workers, lack of financial protection, is also where we have low vaccine uptake. It is vaccine access, that's the problem. That's why we are running this petition, which Dessa will call up, uh, you know, talk about a little later, but please sign this petition. Uh, we already have 6,000 signatures. So people support the end 
to vaccine injustice. So I want to conclude by saying, so what now? And what must Africa do on this vaccine? Um, uh, I'll conclude, as I see you coming up, so I'll not take much time. I want to say Africa was found vulnerable and prepared. In a study of Global Health um, um, Security Index, Africa had very, very low indices. On health, it is called 15 out of 100%. The next point I want to say is that Africa got together. We saw Africa Union come together, Africa CDC, the leadership of uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa, and that assisted Africa a lot to respond to absence of commodities, PPEs, reagents, and testing capacity. That was positive. So where must we go now from here? What we must do is that we must not waste the crisis and we must not be there forever, the grumpy kid. There are things we need to do. We must awaken our potential, but that's not going to happen until we go beyond just complaining about vaccines, but also unlocking the 1.3 billion population that Africa has by ensuring the Africa container of free trade area is implemented and civil society can call out for that and that we have the AMA ratified, the Africa Medicines Agency and civil society organizations can do so. Then finally, demand that African governments achieve universal health coverage so that we can have an agenda of health access that is going to support access to vaccines and other health essential services. Thank you very much. I'd like to stop there. There's a lot to talk about, but I'll stop there now, Maza. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Dr. Gitinji, obviously, we would love to have you for, for the whole session, but I know that you have to sign off soon. Um, so I will try and sneak in one question. And I was a terrible host. I did not even properly introduce you, but I think most of the people here know who you are. You are the CEO of MRF Health Africa. I have a long bio here, which I will not read because I know that it will take more time than you have for this panel. Um, so I just want to sneak in one question before you sign off. And you mentioned the uni universal health care, and that's something that we got several questions about. One, the concern was our kind of um, emphasis on the wishes of the World Bank on the African continent. And the question about does the World Bank in this discussion about universal health care have the best interests of Africans at heart? And linked to that was a question of the insurance-based universal healthcare models. And I am not an expert in universal healthcare, but I know this is something that, that AMRAF works on and we had some interest in. So when you say, let's not waste a crisis, would this really be a time to now push models of universal healthcare that are not insurance-based and that are not sort of focused on people putting out their own money and really revolutionizing the way that we do universal healthcare on the continent in order to really reach the solidarity? And that question about the World Bank is well linked to this, because my understanding from the question was that the World Bank has a kind of model of universal healthcare that they support, which is not loved by most civil society across Africa. Would you agree? This is this is um, uh, uh, this is a very controversial question. Let me put it this way: that the World Bank is a financial institution, and the World Bank CEO president is measured on how much return they have on the financial resources that they deliver. It is so that in poor countries, the World Bank has instruments that actually provide grants, but those are extremely few and conditional. Majority of the World Bank resource allocation is based on debt. That is the problem. In the current situation of vaccines, we have seen that the World Bank approach has been to encourage Countries to take debt to buy vaccines, and countries have taken significant debt. In one country I know, 
It's taken $140 million to buy vaccines, and this is debt. So we have to work with the World Bank because they're obviously we cannot displace the importance of debt mechanisms, that blended financing is part of that, but we have to be very cautious that the leader of health financing in every country is public resources. It is taxes of the people. Then you then come to this next question. How are those taxes utilized? We know that Africa has a very low GDP at about 2.8% of the global GDP, but has 17% of the world's population. And even this GDP, that's 2.8%, has a very low tax efficiency. It's not collected well because a lot of our people are riding on motorbikes, others are shoe shiners, you know, the, so the tax efficiency is very low. So we have a fiscal space problem that we must recognize. Therefore, we must then make a decision that UHC, which is about equity, must first start to the most vulnerable. And that is the role of the state. So when we push for UHC, delivery doesn't matter. The, the demand side financing, by the way, is the least of the conversation. Whether it is insurance-based or it is uh, fully tax-funded, because even insurance can be tax-funded. If I decide I'm going to take a UHC and insurance approach and have a national insurance scheme, I can decide I'm going to buy the insurance for 40% of the poor people in my country. So I can use taxes to finance insurance. So the model of approach, whether it's beverage, you know, or it's, um, uh, you know, the, the one that's used in Germany, doesn't matter. The question is, how do you protect the most vulnerable? And that is the role of taxes. And that's what we must go for. Identify the poor, the government must use taxes to pay their premium or their health costs if it's not tax funded. Then the question is, how do you collect taxes from those who can afford but are doing informal business? How do you collect taxes from those people who own six butcheries in your neighborhood? Because then they need to protect those they are working for them. Then this is the conversation now around tax collection and how it is managed. But obviously, there's a question of how the money is used as well that must come into this mix, which is strategic purchasing, reducing corruption, and increasing budget absorption. It's quite a complex subject that needs a webinar on its own. Absolutely. And hopefully we can get you back on another time. And I know that these issues of taxes and financing are so key to us getting out of this pandemic and also facing future pandemics. So we're really grateful to you for addressing it. I'm so glad that our my country person, Desta, is here from AMREF to stay on after you sign off. So Dr. Gitinji, we really appreciate you. I know we have somebody else waiting for you in another webinar. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And thank you, Maza. Thanks for inviting me. All the best to Catherine and Mohammed for the next session. Thank you thank and bye-bye. Thank you. So everyone, with that, now I will be handing over to another person for whom there was much, much excitement. Dr. Catherine Chobutunji is the Executive Director of the African Population and Health Research Center. If you don't follow her on Twitter, you are missing out. She has one of the best Twitter accounts in town. I highly recommend it. She previously served as the center's director of research and head of the unit on health, health and systems for health. She has a medical background. She's trained as an epidemiologist with research interests in the interface between non-communicable diseases and health systems. She's a strong advocate for the societal benefit of research beyond traditional outputs. She has published so many peer-reviewed papers, sits on multiple national and global expert advisory panels. She's also a fellow of the African Academy of Sciences. And uh, Dr. Chubutunji, we had so much excitement for you joining this webinar. It's such a pleasure to meet you. I will hand over to you now for a few minutes 
to talk about your one, if there's anything you want to respond to, to what Dr. Gitinji said, and just your thoughts of how we bring African solidarity into this discussion as we shift away from just talking about the greed of Western pharma, the hubris of the global North, and also other issues that we've been talking about for the last few months. I'll hand over to you. Please go ahead. Thank you so much for the lovely introduction, Maza, and uh, happy to be here. I don't know where to start. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, the thing is raised a hard act to follow, <laughs> and I'm always um, amazed at um, you know, the depth and uh, the passion that we teach at issues that affect the African continent. And so I think I'll first start with maybe how Africa has done, and uh, maybe from there take the question of what does this mean for African solidarity? So um, I, I was given a brief talk about, you know, how af different African countries have done, how African, African leaders have done. And um, I look at, at different types of African leaders. We have political leaders, we have um, technocrats who are running ministries of health. We have people in uh, bodies that serve the African continent. And then we have, we have Africans who are just there by virtue of being great people uh, who are also playing a leadership role. So if I want to see how African has, Africa has done, I think you have to look at those different types of um, African leadership. And then the pandemic has been with us for two, year, for two years almost. And I think you can sort of track what happened in the initial phases of the pandemic. And then over time, you know, what has been happening, but also what happens during, for instance, when there, there are waves in a specific country, because the country response, uh, responses tend to differ what was um, thought to be very good last year, maybe now is thought to be extreme. So there's been an evolution of the different responses. So the response is not sort of um, a straight line. There's been an evolution and some things which are unacceptable now seem to be acceptable. And then of course, there are so many interventions um, for COVID-19 and um, you have to look at, uh, uh, have countries done well from a purely public health perspective? Or have they done have they done well from maybe a multi-sectoral perspective where they looked at public health, but they was they was also they also looked at at um, education, the economy, you know, and all these um, other considerations. So from that perspective as well, then you know, different countries are doing different things. And then of course, right now we have vaccines, and so there are countries which are you know rushing across, and there's there they have as much coverage as any other country in other parts of the world. But then these are very unique countries. Most of them are very small. They're either middle-income countries. They are countries which have some geopolitical advantage. They are able to cut multilateral deals with pharmaceutical companies. So there are some unique uh, features about the countries which are doing very well as far as the COVID vaccination uptake is concerned. So, uh, and then the other things which are perhaps not so visible, but things which in my view, um, you know, coming from a research background and a research perspective, things which are important for the future. There are some countries which have actually invested in strengthening their research systems and their research institutions. So the CDCs of different national CDCs, if I could call it that, there are countries which have really invested in that. There are a few countries which have made an explicit um, pledge and they've actually made those pledges of investing in R&D that is addressing different types of uh, COVID, uh, different dimensions. It may not be the cutting edge R&D that will give us a vaccine, but at least they've, re they've recognized the value of local knowledge and local evidence. And so they've invested in, uh, put substantial amounts of money, uh, more than they've been putting into R&D, and they put it out there. So there's a lot of research happening in a few countries where that has been the case. But um, so what have been the missteps? Uh, if I look at the political side, I think uh, the politicians, I was counting, there are almost 30 countries which have had elections since last year. 
And given the time dimension, I think having an election last year in the midst of, you know, the global panic and how everybody was, you know, behaving, that was really bold <laughs> or maybe not so bold, maybe foolish to a certain extent. Uh, but, um, you know, countries went ahead and they, they held elections as usual. I think what has been disappointing maybe about some of the African leadership is the business as usual approach. So when it comes to let's have elections, it's the same elections. You know, we can have huge campaigns, we can have rallies, we can have people, you know, shouting and dancing in spite of everything we know about how COVID is transmitted. And so countries have successfully managed to grossly undermine their public health messaging by insisting on the business as usual approach to political, you know, politicking and political campaigns. You know, that's one thing. The second thing, uh, when we look at the the global dynamics, you know, uh, Gitingi has uh, shown us the, the where we are, for instance, in the vaccine access race. We are somewhere very far. It's like we are warming up for a marathon and most of us are still warming up. This, it, this was not the first thing. The first thing was testing, where African countries had all these plans to test people and very soon they knew that the testing supplies were not coming. So they had to completely change the testing strategy. Many African countries do what is known as targeted testing where you test people who have symptoms, contacts, and people traveling. But that was not, that is not, that wasn't the idea. But when the testing materials were not coming, they decided to shift. But that was the first sign. And this is being pushed up to, you know, what we are seeing in the vaccine. So what has been the business as usual is the failure of the African political leadership to recognize that this is a very unequal global system. And it's, it's like, um, they're, they're snapping out of it slowly by slowly. You see more and more um, African presidents being outspoken. But for many months, they were still trying to shame people who are shameless into giving us vaccines and thinking that, you know, trying to shame people um, somehow is going to break down all these structural, global, broken system um, of what we call global health, but uh, which seems to be something else than, than global health. So I think that's what has been surprising, that the African leadership has not woken up the fact that I think the value attached to African life in the global system is, is law. And maybe that should be the thing that um, brings us together around solidarity um, uh, for Africans and around Africa, Africa itself. So I think those are some of the missteps. And then what I mentioned earlier, the sort of medicalization of the pandemic from the, uh, in the initial phases where everything was about the health, but not what about the education, what about the environment, what about the economy, what about agriculture? So there was uh, two, still, it is, it is something which, is, which has been there that public health tends to be medicalized and we, we've not yet come up with good approaches of how you bring everything together. Because for the person on the street, it's not just about COVID. It's about their next meal. It's about their job. It's about their church. It's about their kid who's going to school, their grandchild. But then for us, we, we want them to be obsessed with COVID and forget everything else. So the, the failure of multisectoralism, I think, is one other thing. And I don't see movements towards let's learn. This is like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that let's learn about how to do things differently so that we always don't see things from a medical or a health perspective, that we see the broader environment in which yeah, each of us exists. So I'll, I'll stop there and... Um, we hopefully can take questions, clarifications, and maybe have another opportunity to expound on some of the um, submissions I've made. Back to you, Maza. Excellent, Dr. Chubutunji. Thank you so much for that. And as you're talking about our African leaders that insisted to go ahead with business as usual, 
I'm actually reminded of, of an article that you had tweeted. As you can tell, I'm an avid follower of your Twitter account because it's so good. But um, an article that I forget which news outlet was from that was saying that some of the traits that are seen as very feminized traits, like empathy, you know, thinking about other people, maybe not putting yourself first, are ones that are seen as feminized, but would help us to get out of this pandemic. That maybe if some of our leaders had a little bit less of that hubris, it would have helped us along the way. Is this sort of what you're talking about here? This idea of maybe leaders thinking about getting out of doing things the way they've always doing them and being imaginative, even in the way that they're modeling their leadership. Yeah, I think you can look at that from two different perspectives because, um, and, and the perspective I wanted to see is the failure, um, it's something I wanted to mention, the failure to learn from each other. Every African country is in its own little bubble, doing its own little things. Some neighbors are doing better than others and the other neighbors would rather die than learn from their neighbors who are doing better. And I think that is a function of um, um, you know, I think leadership where people have pride, like we are proud of ourselves as country X, and we think that country X, we are the ones. Um, I think that's the, the, where the hubris comes in. So I think there's that. It's It's been astounding watching the failure to learn from each other, even, um, even in the East African region. You know, there are countries which are doing good things. Uh, maybe they may not get they, they may not get everything right, but if something is working very well for country X, They've, I think that's one of the things that when I think about African solidarity, it is that whole thing of recognizing, as I've said, that the global system is one that is set up to devalue African lives. And so that's if we rally around that and wake up and snap out of whatever trance we're in, that this is where we are in the, you know, in the value chain, in the, in the pecking order, in the global system. And so that alone should unite us. And once it does, one of the things we need to snap out of is the thinking that as one tiny little country, we can, be, we can do things on our, on our own without the, the knowledge and resources and, and, um, and the solidarity and cooperation of our neighbors. So it doesn't have to be money, but acknowledging that this country is doing better than us, can we learn from them? So that we are also better, but so that's where that whole <laughs> um, leadership um, orientation comes in, because I think people are empathetic and people who are sympathetic and people are kind and 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 modest and all that. I think they know what their limits are, and so they are open to learning. But people who are on the other scale, they would rather die than learn from somebody who is perceived to be weaker than they are. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. Um, we will now hand over, we're overpopulated on the East African side of this, this webinar. So now we're shifting over to, to West Africa. We have with us Mohamed Lamin Sadikan, who's the movement coordinator for Africans Rising, who I believe is joining us from Dakar. Is that right? In Senegal? Right. Yes, <laughs> excellent. So Mohamed is an award-winning Pan-African Advocate of the Year for 2018 and was named as one of the 100 most influential young people in Africa in 2019. Um, he works for Africans Rising, as I said, which addresses a lot of these issues about people of African descent around the continent, uh, around the world, actually, focusing on justice, 
peace, dignity. Muhammad himself has a focus on gender-based violence, the rights of youth and women, as well as a focus on tax justice and budget advocacy. So I think that some of the questions that Dr. Gitinji has touched on, some of the questions that Dr. Chobutunji has touched on, you can also expand on. I really, really appreciate what Dr. Chobutunji just said about this, the value of African life really being minimized around the world. And I know this is something that Africans Rising is really focused on. So Mohammed, we're so grateful to have you here to add kind of a different perspective. We have lots of infectious disease specialists and, and other public health people in these discussions. So it's great to have somebody on your end of the, of the spectrum. So thank you for joining us. Please go ahead. Thank you, Mwaza. And then good afternoon to everybody from, from Senegal. Senegal is called the land of Taranga. We are talking about African solidarity. And that's why I have to mention the land of Taranga. Actually, I'm a Gambian. I'm, com I'm coming from, land of Taranga means land of hospitality. I, I come from a country called uh, the Gambia. We call ourselves the smiling coast of Africa, which is also, I'm bringing that, <laughs> that perspective as well in my intro uh, for, for this particular important topic that we are talking about African solidarity and in the face of uh, vaccine apartheid and all of that, the challenges that we face, we try now um, and, you know, for the past uh, almost two years as, as a continent and as people, I would want to start by saying that um, COVID-19 actually found that Africa's um, uh, health, Africa have been in a health crisis and have been in a brutal health challenge that our leaders have put us in and failed to address for quite long. So what COVID-19 did is it exposed it and then it also allow, you know, it also allow, you know, uh, more danger and more challenges on the lives and livelihood of our, of our, of Africans wherever they are. So our governments attempt to use a lot of strategies or copy and paste strategies, you know, from the West uh, who have been fighting for them for, for their lives, you know, and forgetting that um, that they will never be there uh, for Africa, but they will want to save their people first before before us. And then, but the, the most important thing to say globally, I think uh, COVID nineteen have you know shown that the world is so much interconnected that no one can survive without the other so it shows that it shows and it tells africans to be you know to reflect back to the realities of where africa started from you know we our forefathers have cried for the unification and have did their part in trying to unify africa so that africa can fight as a block africa can fight as, as a region uh, because we are so much connected culturally um, in all aspects, but the division of Africa in the fight, you know, in this pandemic have really challenged many and it have made it very hard for, for, for many, many things. And then I'm very honored to be actually in the midst of the two doctors who are very much seasoned and then highly experienced and then they've made some, some, um, some, uh, some great points that I will re-echoed and then emphasize in, in some aspects. I think the, the, there's a whole issue around you know, travel, travel discrimination that Africa is facing. Africa has been facing travel discrimination from the, for, 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 for a long time, but this uh, vaccine have really exposed it you know, more strongly that, that uh, I think the things that are not even false, um, are not even true, have been now leveled on Africa. And we need to rise up and realize that you know, Africa has always been used as, you know, as a target to dump any bad thing to us, but we need to realize that, you know, nobody will come from anywhere in the world to come and make Africa great or save our lives. We have to save our lives together. And we cannot save our lives when we are fighting or doing responding 
independently. So that's why what Dr. Catherine said is critical for our governments to realize this faster and for us as people to realize this faster that we have to work together as African people to solve and then deal with our issues in our own way uh, using our own strategies. Africa is blessed um, with a lot of resources, uh, but I think the, the, the vaccine uh, challenges and the issue of how the world have been responding, uh, especially the rich uh, part of the world have been responding to the crisis shows that it's high time for us to really take charge of our destiny and control our resources so that we'll be able to make enough money or enough resources that can help Africa to respond. When you look at um, statistics, we'll tell you that you know we, we, we have enough money from that is being lost out of out of tax that can that can that can really respond to our issues, our, our, all the different de development issues that Africa is faced with. Um, from the report that I read recently from uh, African Development Bank, Africa is losing about seventy to eighty billion yearly. Uh, that could address this health crisis that we are dealing with. Uh, we are, our leaders have been failing to really, you know, work together and trade together. If you look at the trade uh, percentage of trade within Africa, we are about 16 percent of trade within Africa. So that is telling us that we are not making money within Africa, but we are allowing, you know, people to tap from us. And then even our contribution to global trade is about 2% as, as, as a continent. So what is this telling us is when the world closed their doors to Africa, we will, we will be struggling to even survive. And then that's what is happening right now. Um, that's what is showing. The discrimination on our people, on the Africans is very high. And we really need to waking up by, you know, talking to each other. You know, we need to, we really need to, if we don't talk to each other, we don't feel the, we don't feel the pain that others are feeling and we don't understand the solutions that we can collectively, um, you know, implement together. So that's why these webinars are very important. This particular solidarity webinar is very critical that we need to see that um, where each brothers keep us. You know, our forefathers have been doing this before, before colonization, before we are divided into pieces, I will call it, before we are divided into like a pista. You know, they have been there for each other. When our brothers and sisters, their brothers and sisters' house are burned down, nobody goes to bed in that village. They all come together to work and ensure that that house is fixed. So why can't Africa go back to this uh, old ways of doing and dealing with things? You know, when we know that when even some of the rich countries or some of the better countries, there's no countries richer in Africa, but like the better countries in Africa, um, when they are safe, they feel like, you know, they need to protect their borders, they need to close their borders, but they know that they, they forget to know that you know, we are so much linked that one of one or two of us will leave and then, you know, go into another country. So Africa is so much linked that we have to really work together and, and, and be there. And then our leaders need to be up. Recently, I was I was watching Uhuru Kenyatta, you know, and then the president of South Africa, Ramaphosa, talking about, you know, putting these two airlines together, Kenya Airways and South African Airways. And Uhuru mentioned very critical points of the solution to Africa, that, you know, we need to really look into these borders, that, our, that have been created by the West and imposed on us and also have been divided into languages. So we really need to look into this and see how we can fix this challenge. Because for us, we all know, even the leaders know, that the challenges of Africa cannot be that addressed without dealing with the challenges of border. So um, we will be able to really collectively think as, as, as people to be able to deal with the challenges that, that we face. I will say that, you know, um, it, um, Dr. Uh, Gitangi talked about Gitangi talked talk about you know the aspect of um, you know loans and debts that comes along with the response on COPIC. It's very critical and very clear that our leaders have rushed to take loans and debts that they, that we don't even need in addressing or in responding to uh, to the to the issues of COPIC. 
So um, we are we are seriously challenged um, as, as 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 people that we are indebted in this response, and that our generations will pay for that debt. So that means we have given ourselves back to the West or to the powerful world leaders to still control us as slaves because we have to be continuing paying this through these institutions that are that are given loan. Uh, you know, our movements in Kenya have protested against loans from World Bank and, and IMF and all of that. So, but governments are not are never listening because they are taking this and then enjoying and then sharing the money within themselves. It's clear that many ministers right now are not even facing the public. Health ministers, you know, from Burundi to Ghana, from many, many other countries, they are not facing the public because they have been involved in scandals of uh, corruption in 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 the, in, the, in the countries either through vaccines or through other uh, PPI productions uh, in, in in their spaces. So I think I see vaccines. Uh, let me say, COVID nineteen issues have advanced, you know, issues of corruption in you know in our society, which is one of the biggest diseases that Africa has been dealing with. But it, it you know it advanced the corruption mechanisms in that sector that have been quite or with, you know people don't know about the health crisis uh, in those spaces. Um, I think uh, the other part is to also talk about you know for us to be real as African people. You know, our response cannot be the same with the response of, of the West. You know, we, our, our people understand things differently and we need to embrace and understand that uh, the people, the people in the rural areas or urban areas and rural areas, poor communities who are struggling for their livelihood, they're responding, their response to these issues cannot be the same with people who, are, who can stay in their houses for one hour, one month without, without suffering for food. So the realities of our society must be checked. And then as well, that should be the way of a strategy to develop to, to, to the response mechanism. And then our leaders have failed in this from the onset of, of, of the response. Uh, we have seen people being brutalized, people who have been chained and you know, you know kicking out of their livelihood in the in the face of you know protecting them. And and we have some of them have not even still recovered from, from, from that challenges of government bad, bad strategies from, from, from our governments. Mm -hmm. So in terms of vaccine, um, I think the vaccination process, the injustices is clear that uh, the world actually is selective. Everybody wants to protect themselves, forgetting that COVID-19 shows us the reality that we are all one. We have to address this pandemic as one people, as a wall. If not, this will be with us for, 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 for very long time if we are not able to be more inclusive in the response. As, as, as world leaders. And then our leaders should have been very, you know, collective in their voices and then put that to the world leaders in all the spaces that they, that they, that they, that they go and have the opportunity to, to address each other uh, with, with the rest of the world. And Africa should have suffered as an as a sample. Uh, but unfortunately, this is not happening real. So we have been dropping the ball from, from the time of African liberation, from the time of um, when the, our leaders met in, in Addis to unify Africa. So. In all the aspects, as we move on, African leaders have been failing, failing Africans. But it's high time for us now, the people, to really rise up because we put these leaders there to know that we have to unify in our response. Mm -hmm. I would want to say that, you know, the, uh, the other aspect around vaccination in itself, you know, we know that we are challenged. We have, given, we have been given some few drops of, uh, drops of vaccines as, as a continent. But how do we administer this as well? It's also another challenge. We use, we use the poor method of yen in terms of you know dropping this the the solidarity is, is missing we used to see when pandemics hit africa and we have been i've been i used to be a red cross uh, volunteer i've worked in the red cross before for so many years and then i've been part of these public edu public education teams you know doing vaccinations across 
across regions, you know, in countries that have, have, have served in before. Uh, we have been doing this, but this whole COVID-19 response vaccination have not really gone that, you know, have not taken that route of realities of how it's done in Africa. So we are asking people to go to the health center who is taking for food, you know, asking people to go to the health center who is thinking of, you know, you know, um, water. So you have to go, you have to go down to the, to the, to the communities and, and, and meet these people. So that's what our governments are failing to do. That's why you can see in countries like Gambia, about 90,000 doses of vaccines are getting expired in two months' time. So, so the, the, even the small vaccines that are coming, the small possible vaccines that are coming, are not utilized enough. Um, mm-hmm. So, so this, these are some of the critical, critical um, um, realities uh, that we, that we can talk about. I want to just wrap up to say, okay. uh, to say that you know, Africans Rising and its um, movement partners have been strongly working um, to follow the money. Uh, to ensure that you know, we, you know, governments are hold on check. But again, you know, we we're running a campaign called Rise for Our Lives. You know, we need to rise for our lives as African people, and African solutions need to be taken. That means we have to encourage governments to invest into uh, vaccine, local production of vaccines, so that people can trust uh, even taking the vaccines as 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 as, as a kind of a critical African solution. Mm-hmm. Again, we have been also campaigning on what we call freedom. You know, political prisoners who have been jailed. Um, asking government to free them because so that you can reduce the tension in prisons for transmission. Um, so these are all um, some of the efforts that our movement is taking. But we believe that the solution is in our own hands as African people, and we must unify our, our efforts. Thank you so much, Mohammed. Such a lot of work that Africans Rising is is doing. Um, we really appreciate you, and I know that some of the issues that you brought up, the local production issue. I hope that Dr. Chubutunji can help us talk about that a little bit. And I know that AMREF has worked on this some as well. So this idea of increasing the local production of vaccines on the continent at the moment, my understanding is that 99% of the vaccines we use on the continent are imported. And this obviously needs to change. So I hope that we'll be able to talk a little bit more about that. One question that I wanted to ask you though, Mohammed, you talked about the travel restrictions. And I know that when the UK implemented the travel ban and other countries as well implemented travel bans against Southern Africa, there was a big outcry. However, when our own neighbors, Rwanda and Angola, implemented the same travel ban, people were relatively quiet. I heard Cyril, uh, President Ramaphosa make a statement, but other than that, people were quiet. So I wonder, you know, I know that Africans Rising calls out African leaders on a regular basis, but do we need to, what is the balance between calling out our own brothers and sisters and saying what you're doing is actually wrong? A country like Rwanda, which is doing so much to try and increase African solidarity, to put on the same travel ban that was not backed up by science, I found quite disappointing, but I noticed that most people who were very vocal against the UK and then have been very um, vocal against Canada were very quiet when it came to Rwanda and Angola. So what would you say about that? Yeah, you see, uh, I said it in the beginning, um, many of our leaders from the beginning have failed to, uh, to use our own strategies that work for us. So we have kind of copied and paste uh, strategies from the West. When the West do something, they will just quickly act on that. And then that's, that's the reality. That's what have manifested in this travel ban situation as well. So we must be honest to ourselves and understand that we have the required intellectual capacity and capability to be able to think for ourselves and make decisions for ourselves. And then realize that, you know, Africa cannot survive without each other. So we all have to work together. If South Africa have a, uh, have a challenge that has been discriminated, the rest of Africa need to be in solidarity with them and work with them to clean that mess and the myth 
the bad myths that have been created, rather than you know copying and pasting in, in from from what is happening um, by the West Western countries. So we really condemn this, and we, we hope that um, collectively we can push on our leaders to to, to continue holding them accountable, so that um, they will hear the, the the real the real truth and see the power that is behind the, the masses. Okay. Thank you so much, Mohammed. We will come back to you. Now I'd like to hand over to my country person who we're very lucky to have here, who has stayed on um, to represent AMREF um, after the departure of Dr. Gitinji. Uh, Desta Lako is AMREF's Group Partnership and External Affairs Director. In this role, she leads global partnerships for Africa and has been engaged in securing high-level strategic global partnerships for AMREF, AMREF Health Africa. Thank you very much for coming. Please, I'll give you the floor. I know that AMREF has this exciting um, new program that Dr. Gitinji mentioned, um, which is the End Vaccine Injustice. So if you'd like to brief people on that, we would love to hear about it. But also anything else that you'd like to say in response to um, our previous speakers, please go ahead. Thank you so much, Maza. And actually, let me just say that from another country woman, it's a pleasure to be here. And and uh, of course, I know uh, Catherine and uh, Githinji well, the work that they're doing, and I'm just hearing about Mohammed. So um, really uh, very important points that have been raised here in, in this conversation. I think for us, and I know Githinji mentioned this, um, uh, this vaccine, uh, not vaccine, um, uh, you see, I'm, I'm, I'm losing. Hesitancy, apartheid? No. <laughs> um, I, did, I have to say, I did see your um, Dr. Gitanji posted the campaign, but he posted the, the Zoom results from AMREF for the last year, and it was something ridiculous. The amount of hours that AMREF has spent on Zoom in the last year. So don't worry, we understand it's December 7th. We completely understand. Please go ahead. No problem. I was I was talking about our, our vaccine injustice campaign. But I think, you know, two years ago when when this pandemic started and manufacturers were producing, you know, so many vaccines, at least enough to meet the WHO targets uh, to to vaccinate at least 70 percent of the population by mid 2022. Our vaccination rates, as you said earlier, were just still at now seven percent. Um, and so as we begin to look at this and as we begin to see why is this happening, because largely it's around vaccine and hoarding of vaccines. So while much has been said, and Gidinje um, alluded to it earlier, about the role of vaccine hesitancy, the real issue really is on the supply side. So it's a supply side challenges that have emerged more as the biggest concern or the biggest contributors to low COVID-19 uptake. And uh, he met, he showed you, you know, the different things around, you know, the difference between rich and poor, the difference between, um, you know, uh, capital city and out in the urban areas where the lack of access to facilities. So all of these are things that contribute to it, but the real issue is vaccine availability. So, you know, the truth is, people can't be hesitant about vaccines that they don't have access to. And we recognize that. And most Africans do want to be vaccinated. They want to go things to go back to normal. They want to walk mask free. They want to socialize without fear uh, or without catching a, an infection. They want to travel without requiring COVID-19 tests. So 
and, and they want to see their businesses flourish. So recently we did a study and 81 among community health workers, I'm sorry about this noise in the background, I just cannot help it. Um, but in this study, uh, it was really for vaccine knowledge and attitudes towards vaccination among community health workers. So when we did this, 81% of, of the participants revealed that in fact, they would accept the vaccine and champion its uptake. So really the issue is um, as long as we make sure that the COVID-19 vaccines are within reach of every African, we will make progress. And so we actually pulled this uh, thinking together and we said, those were some of the whys, you know, the whys are vaccine in inequity exposes our African countries to further cycles of instability and even greater risks associated with COVID-19. It really reverses the gains that we've made over the past decade. We may even be looking at COVID not as a pandemic, but as an endemic in Africa. And what we've seen also is that the wealthier nations have largely adopted a nation first policy and ignored their own global commitments to equity. So that's why we said Africa must stand up and we must use collectively our words to affect change. You've gone through some of the data and some of the numbers, how many African countries are vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. So we have launched this campaign. There are five pillars to this campaign. The first one is around ending stockpiles. And there should be no stockpiling of vaccines in rich countries before people in Africa and other parts of the world have also been vaccinated. Um, limiting boosters. There should be no large scale rollout of booster shots until sufficient supplies have reached the African continent. Sharing more and sharing faster. You know, some countries have started sharing vaccines, but this needs to really be accelerated and increased. Uh, the issue around sharing licenses, technology and know-how, and this is the issue about, you know, how can we produce our own? So really uh, waiving IP for COVID-19 vaccines, therapeutics and diagnostics globally. And then the fifth pillar really of the campaign is never again, let us learn from this pandemic. Africa should never find itself in this position again, where it's so reliant on other countries for life-saving medical supplies. So the, the campaign itself really is to have as many people in Africa. And when we say in Africa, we mean from the ground up. This is not just about leaders, country leaders, or those of us who are on this call, but it is actually about also individuals at the community level to really stand up and say, we need to be heard. We need to have uh, vaccines available and accessible to us. And once we have launched this campaign, which we have done now, what we are really going to do is take these petitions and appeal to G7, G20, the vaccine manufacturers, and really demand that our five points in the petition are heard and are actioned on. So really what our goal is, and since Givinji has uh, mentioned this to you, and I'm, I'll share with you the vaccine uh, hesitancy, uh, the vaccine uh, injustice campaign details uh, online, but since we have, uh, since Givinji spoke and he said there were what, 36,000 people who had, had signed? Yeah. yeah. We're at 37,000 already. So really, uh, part of this is is making sure that all of us um, 
all of us signed this petition, all of us have our voices heard, uh, all of us participates because it takes it, it takes actually more than a village. It takes a village, it takes a community, it takes a, a whole nation to reverse things. And I think it's time that our voice is heard. Um, and I and I think I'll end there. I think uh, part of part of our issue is we get so caught up and angry and upset about these things. But the reality is we do have a voice. Uh, we are getting making our voice heard on this platform uh, of your audience. But I think that all of us have an obligation to also share this with other circles, with our communities, and make sure we have, you know, 100,000, a million uh, signatures so that we can go and get things done at the highest level. So thank you very much for this opportunity to share that with you. Thank you so much, Desta. I just have one question, and I do hope that, you know, this campaign receives a huge number of signatures. Um, but something that um, our colleague, Dr. Catherine, broke, uh, brought up, this idea of not being able to shame the shameless. And I wonder if you as AMREF, which is, you know, I think one of the largest health organizations on the continent, maybe you feel that you have more of an impact. You know, I wanted to ask you about this. Often we find, as Dr. Catherine has said, that it is very difficult, even with, you know, 500,000 signatures, can we shame the shameless who feel that African lives are not as valuable as their lives? Um, so just a question about that in terms of strategy going forward with these signatures is the hope that the G7, the G20 will say, we will be embarrassed by, we'll lose trade um, capabilities you know, with African countries. What will push them over the edge to make that change? I think our voices, our collective voices, I know that Gidinji has been on CNN, has been on Al Jazeera and all these news stations to really talk about the inequity issue. And, um, you know, unfortunately, our experience in Africa has been very much um, uh, sort of driven by, you know, uh, a colonial uh, history. Uh, and therefore, there are really uh, the debris of that colonialism that still remains. And, uh, you know, my view is there are many people who are very well intentioned, uh, many people who want to save their own uh, countries and their populations. Uh, and I think that um, as long as folks realize, you know, we, we can talk about ignorance, but ignorance really it breeds prejudice in its own way. So it's really bringing to light the importance of the lives, 7% vaccinated in Africa, and, and there are countries with 70 plus percent vaccinated. So it's really saying, don't be ignorant. You know, uh, ignorance equals uh, injustice uh, and prejudice as well in some cases. Let's open your eyes. This is what is happening. You know, if the news media is not picking up the inequities that are taking place in Africa, there's not going to be any change, right? So if we are all vocal, if we are on national platforms, on global platforms, speaking about the same thing and not just leaving it to Githinji or Catherine or Tedros or any number of, you know, higher level African leaders, but really as individuals who are responsible for our community, speaking also, lending our voice. And I think that's what's going to make the difference. And that's why this petition is important because it's not just sitting in, you know, on the leadership level, it is really from community up. If you go on to this, um, uh, this petition, you will see community voices. You will see people who are in many different countries talking about the impact of COVID on their families and the lack of vaccines uh, access. 
So this is really all of our voices collectively that I think will, will push things over the edge. Excellent. Thank you so much, Desta. So now I would ask our two other panelists, Mohammed and Dr. Chubutunji, if you could turn your cameras back on if the, if the bandwidth allows. Um, we do have a series of, of questions that are coming in. The first one, Dr. Catherine, is for you as a follow-up to what we have just discussed here. We have a question from our, our comrade Marlies from the Health Justice Initiative, and she was one of the initiators of this whole series of panels. So Marlies asks, you know, just as a follow-up to this question of the lack of value on African lives, how can we really form one solidarity within Africa with keeping that lack of value on African li lives in mind, but also how do we form true solidarity with the global North? So kind of building on what Desta has just been saying, you know, I brought up that issue that you had raised about being unable to shame the shameless, you know, how do we build real solidarity with the global North? Oh, where to start? And I think maybe the place to start is greater awareness of what's going on. And to say that uh, what we are seeing right now is the system working exactly as it was designed. This is not, <laughs> they're saying, which, which says it's not a bug, it's a feature. It, the system is working exactly as it, was, as, as it was designed. I think once we come to that realization as Africans, then we have to ask ourselves, is this the system that we want for ourselves? Because um, global health practice is supposed to be a system that is for everyone. But in theory, it's a system where, you know, all of us, we're a global community. And so um, we practice things that benefit all of us. But in practice, it's a system where uh, people with power and influence do things for people without power and influence. That's how the system has been. It's been like that, you know, for many years. This I just mentioned about this whole colonial approach to um, to global health, and there are other debates about decolonization and all that. So the system is working exactly as it was designed. And it's been quite fascinating, for instance, watching how rich countries have successfully rebuffed, you know, to be shamed into doing something right for the first time in the midst of a global pandemic, the first major global pandemic in our lifetime, to do something different. But maintaining the status quo that IPs are so sacred, we can't do anything to IPs you know, two years in a pandemic that has sort of upended everything we know about what's normal and, you know, what, what it means to be human. It has upend, upended it, but IPs are so sacred. Rich countries cannot, like, rock this boat because otherwise things are going to happen. So that is, as I said, it's the system as, as, as it was intended. And so rich countries also successfully sort of navigating that towards the narrative of donate, share. And not just donate and share, you know, I always wants to cry when I see a minister <laughs> welcoming vaccines at 2 a.m. at an airport. So it's not that we are going to shift away from something which could have decisively led to the pandemic. No, we're going to ride it out until we reach a point where it's acceptable and we appreciate greatly getting leftover doses and getting donations. That is exactly the system. It's working the way it was designed. So that's what I'm saying that for us as Africans, solidarity starts from recognizing that this is the system as it has existed. What COVID has done is put it out there for all of us to see. But the system, how it has worked for HIV, for TB, for malaria, for you know, nutrition, what it has, it is, it is, it is designed that way, that um, there are certain things which are done for us and we appreciate them. And then it sort of negates a lot about the knowledge system that exists within Africa. So there are things about that recognition. And once recognized, recognize it, then what? 
And coming, of course, from a research perspective and a research background, I would say that the beginning point is the knowledge system. So Africa needs to recognize the value of knowledge, whether it is scientific knowledge as has been defined in the system that exists currently. So um, investments in research, investments in R&D, not just for vaccines. I, I've seen a lot of initiatives, for instance, trying to build Africa's capacity to manufacture vaccines. And I've already said we need to step back very many steps before we start manufacturing them. We need to do R&D that produces vaccines, that produces therapeutics, that you know, produces uh, diagnostics. So that is the science system as it exists. We need to invest in those systems because coming up with a vaccine candidate doesn't start from vaccine candidates. There's a lot of science behind vaccine development. And you can invest in those broad-based science, whether it is immunology, whether it is uh, virology, whether it is genetics, a lot of things we can invest in as Africa to generate science that now in future can contribute to vaccine development. That's one thing. But having said that, as Africans, we also need to step back and say, what is knowledge? Because knowledge is defined by the global system. And so some forms of knowledge are discounted while other forms of knowledge are given more prominence. So we need to say, how do we define knowledge as it applies to Africa, how do we recognize lived experiences, for instance? How do we recognize context? If you've grown up in Kenya and you're 40 years old, there's something you know about Kenya that you can never learn by doing a PhD on Kenya. You can never learn that. You're, you're Kenyan, you've lived here. So how do we capture that? How do we measure it? How do we document that? And then infuse it into the things that we say and the things that we do. So, the, But the beginning point, as I've said, is the, for us to open our eyes and know that this is the world as designed by others for us. And we need to design a world that is different. And so, and by doing this, as I've said, starting from the knowledge system, examining our own power because we are part of the system. So being ready to do things that we've been told many times that they can't work because they are not based on the latest scientific evidence. So we are, we are going to do them anyway because that evidence that is the latest is part of a system, a knowledge system that is broken to begin with. Who owns it? Who decides what is knowledge? So all that, I think that's the beginning point. And then of course, in terms of the solidarity that we form um, amongst ourselves, I already said that as Africans, once we recognize that we're in this together, we are the people at the bottom the value of the value chain, the global value chain or the global uh, pecking order. We are there, that's what defines us. We need to ask ourselves, this is not what we want for ourselves. And then let, then let it be the rallying cry for us building solidarity amongst ourselves. And then when it comes to partnerships, uh, you know, with the global north, I think it's that all of us need to self-reflect and say, why do we do what we do? And I've said in previous, uh, you know, forums around decolonization, if you are a global health practitioner, why are you doing what you do? Are you doing it because of the pay, that the pay is good? Are you doing it because you want to add 10 papers on your CV? Why are you doing it? Because you think this is actually going to help someone, that something is going to happen that is going to change someone's life. So once we all self-reflect about the, why we do the things we do, then that's, I think, a good basis of trying to form um, solidarity. Excellent. Thank you so much. Desta, it sounds like you wanted to say something or were you just as excited as I was? I was excited <laughs> as you were, but I also wanted to say, you know, the thing about lived experience is so true. Um, and I think that sometimes um, people can take things that you say very personally and be sensitive. Uh, and, and that's okay. Uh, it's okay to be a little bit uncomfortable. 
because it's not really about individuals and it's really about institutions and uh, systems that are in place. So I think, you know, to the issue of how loudly do we want to speak to the issue of uh, what are the words that are coming out? Is it, a, you know, when we talk about, is it a, a, an issue of discrimination or uh, things like that? I think we need to really examine, all of us collectively examine the systems within which we operate, whether it is in the global north or in the global south. And, uh, you know, there was a question I think I saw earlier, maybe it's, it was on an email that said, you know, uh, how can the global north and the global south do something about this? And, and my view is when you look at this petition, for example, it is not just for you and I, Maza and Catherine and Mohammed to sign. This is actually for everyone to sign. Yes, it generates from the global south, but the global north also has an opportunity to take up this cause to their various institutions that are making decisions um, to really uh, begin to re restructure the thinking around how vaccines are distributed, how you know access to IPs and other things are considered. So I think we all have a responsibility. Sometimes we, we think that shouting too loud is really an awful thing, but it's not. Uh, in fact, if we pull ourselves, our personal thinking around out of it, it's really about changing systems. And I think collectively our voices can do that in the global north and south. Thank you, Desta. Mohammed, I have uh, one question that, that came for you um, specific to, I think, the situation in Kenya, where I believe vaccine mandates have now been put into effect, that people cannot access government documents and go into some spaces um, without showing proof of vaccination um, in a country that's still, I think Nairobi is doing quite well, but in many places where vaccine rollout is still quite low. So the question is in related relation to, you know, is this breaching an already kind of um, very tenuous trust that the people have with their government? And two, is this an excuse now for the government to be even more harsh in terms of how they police people. You mentioned earlier the stories that we have seen, um, you know, of people being beat up in the streets because they breached curfew, et cetera, in, in Kenya during the lockdown early on and in other countries as well. So does Africans Rising have a perspective on this, you know, this notion of a country like Kenya saying, we do have vaccines, we have not done a very good job, maybe in some cases of making sure that in rural areas, they're getting out as quickly as they should, you know, as you mentioned, and I know Dr. Bitinji has mentioned as well that some of the mechanisms that are used for vaccine rollout could really be improved to, you know, whether it's mobile clinics, um, clinics in tents out in rural areas. So what is Africans rising position on this? You know, the concern is that the Kenyan government and other governments will be using these vaccine mandates to crack down on people and that the trust with, between the people and the governments is already quite weak. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think I will start saying that, you know, um, this is going to be an unfortunate and a blunt betrayal on the, on, the, on, the, on the promises that uh, governments have made to serve people. When governments are actually campaigning, including the Kenyan government and any other government that is going to put these kind of measures, I have gone down to the, to, to the rural areas. I have an opportunity to use to live in Kenya and work there. So I know how Kenya is and how the society is structured. So if a government official, when they are campaigning, can go down to the grassroots and then meet people for their votes, they should be able to provide, you know, vaccines to those spaces, to those localities without um, 
given in Nairobi. So it's going to be a serious fundamental human rights violation there now to you know crack on those people people who have been fighting for their lives you know struggling to feed themselves now asking them to travel for distance you know money that's used for their livelihood to be used for unfair or transport to go and get vaccinated what they what would what would they choose actually they will choose to eat before you know traveling so the government have to really advance uh, more efforts to reach people where they are because they know how to read them when they need votes so they must really uh, be able to read them out uh, out there if that is not the case we will we will we will see a serious violation of the, of the of the rights of those citizens who will be you know put on check um, when they have, when they need to access certain certain uh, services in in certain uh, cities and then as africans rising we condemned all those kind of violations of by government by any government including that of kenya and then um, we will call citizens to really you know mobilize themselves and then and then adjourn their forces when they join forces together, I know one thing that's clear about Africa and African leaders is that they, they are very much listened to two, two, two things. One is about media, when we when people really talk about issues. So people that are affected, that have been harassed already, really need to come together and use the mechanisms that are in place, social media platforms, and, and really voice this injustice out. So that people who are listening, are hearing these injustices can rally with them. And then that rallying and working together will build power and that power can speak to the power that is below them, which is the governments, so that then the government will do the right thing. Thank you, Mohammed. So we have a question, Desta, for you, and I think maybe after you answer it, we can open it up to both Mohammed and Dr. Chobutundi as well. You mentioned that there are some uncomfortable things that should be said when we talk about vaccine apartheid and decolonizing aid, etc., so we have a question here. What are some of the other uncomfortable things that should be said? I'm putting you on the spot here. There are so many, but if you had to pick a couple. Okay, so having put aside decolonizing health and, and those issues are around, um, you know, what is the value of an African life? I think that's an important thing to think about in the world. When we, when we think about our history, where we've come from and, and the role that uh, other countries have played. So what is the value of the African life is the first thing I would put out there, which is about vaccine apartheid, et cetera. But I think other things that people don't want to speak about are, for example, internally, internally displaced people. You know, how are we going to provide access to them? We don't, you know, it's already difficult to provide um, access to primary care. So how are we handling these populations? How are we handling other marginalized populations in our communities? You know, there's one thing about access to care and we can see that um, uh, vaccines can be delivered if there's access to care. If people don't have to walk three or four hours to the nearest clinic. You can see the uptake of vaccines when they're available. But I think there are so many different groups that we're not really speaking about and internally displaced people are one. Um, other marginalized populations, uh, and there are a number, uh, you know, those are also things that in the African community you don't really speak about necessarily, but those are really important groups to look at as well. Um, the role of gender and access to uh, vaccines. You know, are women who are making the decisions on healthcare or even feeding the family, et cetera, are they involved in, in the decision-making on whether they can access or are they able to access vaccines? So I think there are so many, you know, small pockets of, uh, of uh, populations that we haven't even addressed. We have just dumped everybody into an all Africa basket, right? 
Um, but if you looked at other countries, you can that have numbers and data maybe, and then that goes back to what Catherine is saying, is a knowledge. Do these do we have really uh, an indication of how many women are receiving vaccines? How many children? I was just in the U.S. Uh, this past month. And, you know, yes, people are taking boosters, but, you know, people are also being incentivized to take those boosters, right? So really, I say, Marlies, you're talking about sex workers, LGBTQ. Yes, absolutely. Homeless people. In, in Africa, we're talking about also, you know, displaced populations. So, you know, there are so many individuals and pockets of communities that don't have access to routine services, much less to be able to access vaccines, which are not accessible because we don't have the numbers. Um, so those are some of those things that I think will be uncomfortable for some uh, on the continent to talk about. Certainly the issue of sex workers, LGBTQ, people who use drugs, et cetera, et cetera, are not normally talked about, uh, but these are also vulnerable communities and vulnerable populations. So uh, we should be looking at all of our vulnerable populations and making sure that they have access. Thank you, Dusta. And Mohammed, I would like to come back to you before we go back to Dr. Catherine, because I know, unfortunately, you do have a, a, an emergency that you're going to have to, to leave us for. So I wanted to give you an opportunity. I know that Africans Rising is not shy about calling out these uncomfortable truths. And I know that you have worked on a lot of youth-centered projects, gender-centered projects. Um, Desta brings up the fact that women have borne the brunt of this pandemic for the most part, um, you know, being part of the informal economic sector, also taking the burden of care and maybe not having the decision-making power, you know, to go and stand in line for four hours to wait for a vaccine when you need to take care of your family at home. So what is Africans Rising kind of thinking will be a mechanism to deal with these populations who even in the countries where we do have some vaccines are not able to access them? What are some uncomfortable truths that Africans Rising has had to raise at country level. Thank you so much. Um, I think our members have been, you know, very much on this um, campaign uh, called Rise for Our Lives, where they are reaching out to governments, engaging governments at all levels, but also engaging communities to really come together and, and, and sensitize them so as themselves, but also to collectively work together in different buckets, like especially the women movements and youth movements have been very instrumental in in, in, in this collective of, uh, of a campaign where you know there is in all the different type of issues I talked about they follow the money that how is the health you know money budget used on on, on, on this whole issue of response to having the population vaccinated but also having been providing the certain necessities so, so communities especially women um, uh, who are in, in the front line of you know feeding their family, but also taking care of the household, you know, um, burden. So these are things that um, the movements on the ground have been have been uh, working on, and we have been collectively supporting and amplifying their voices uh, so that they can be heard. And have also been engaging a lot of um, government, um, high-level government officials in this in this crisis, so that they they really understand and hear what what the, what the people are faced with. But I think um, for me. It's a continuous fight because we know that our setup and our systems have been in a way in a way that our, many of our government officials, if not all, have been you know living in a life of comfort comfort and they don't they don't they don't care much about the ordinary citizens. So that's why the ordinary citizens really need to get organized, especially in the in the in the face of women movements, in the face of youth movements, 
totally challenge the power because when 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 women actually really organize themselves um, that we work with, governments have been in response uh, in, in in many instances. So that organizing model and that organizing mood need to continue because um, um, we have to hold governments accountable to deliver on the promise that they've made as, as they take power. And uh, one thing that is clear is if you don't if you don't feel it you know it's difficult for you to act on it and then these people are living in very comfortable life they already got uh, their vaccines and they already got maybe their boosters already they have gone to europe and took these boosters already to save themselves so they feel like they are not even part of the society so if you do a research on how many health ministers or how many uh, presidents have got the boosters you will find out that maybe almost all of them in africa got this you know they have trouble for it or they're almost about to trouble for it so um, we live in a society that uh, that is whole and unjust, and then uh, most of the time the boring and the the challenges, the brutal challenges taken by women and, and young people. So that's why they have to be supported by all different players in the space to be able to advance their agenda and uh, their issues, so that we can confront the the challenge holistically. Mm-hmm. And Mohammed, I just want to make sure that people know how they can access the work that you're doing. You know, the, the real goal of this webinar is to speak about solidarity across the continent. You know, some of what Dr. Chobuchundi has been speaking about of, you know, learning from each other. You know, some countries have done exceptionally well. You know, there might be things that are really individual to those countries, but there might be other things that are, the neighbors can learn from. Um, so it's really about the continent-wide solidarity as well. So if people want to join the Africans Rising movement and really make noise at a continent-wide level, um, how can they do that? Great, thank you so much. I just touched in the uh, the website. Thank you for the opportunity to share it. Yeah, um, Africans Rising, you can go on our website and then uh, become a member wherever you are in Africa uh, to be able to, you know, you know, contribute your efforts in building this Pan-African movement of people and organizations that is, you know, built on the premise of Ubuntu, solidarity, that we felt that when Africa, one Africa is in challenge, the rest cannot sleep without, you know, being in support of them, because we believe that the Africa that we want is the, is the liberation of the people to have the dignified life. So that cannot be done in silos, so we have to do it together. So your work can be promoted here. You can be a member. You can also take charge of uh, what this movement does and what how how this movement responds to issues. We 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 started responding to uh, the the COVID nineteen crisis uh, when it started immediately because it's one of the critical uh, commitments of the movement that when Africans are in crisis, the movement must be responsive to the issues of Africans. If not, we are not relevant to be here. So that's why the collective response and then supporting and amplification. And connecting and building solidarity around response is very critical as, as a way of working for, for, for the movement. So you can go on the website, africansrising.org, um, and then check on join us, uh, be part of us. Then you can join as a movement, as an individual, or as organizations. We have now members in across 190 countries, both in Africa and globally, um, with uh, different organizations and individuals who are, who are doing this work with us. Thank okay. You. Thank you so much, Mohammed. And I know that Africans Rising is not only focused on issues of COVID-19, but you touch on justice, peace, and dignity. And those are obviously all areas that have really been affected by this pandemic. I'm sorry about your emergency. I hope the, the person will, will recover soon. And whenever you need to sign off, please, please go ahead. And it's going to be for the rest of us 
a masterclass with Dusta and Catherine here with the, the two of you. Um, so we'll stay just for the, the remaining time. We still have a lot of questions to go through. So Mohammed, we really thank you and we hope to see you again soon. Um, so Dr. Chobutungi, I'm going to go back to you then to um, just build on this question of the uncomfortable truths. And when I told people that you were going to be on this panel, that was one of the first things that they said. You know, they said, you know, Dr. Catherine says the most uncomfortable things to people, but she says them in the most diplomatic way that they don't even know that they're being called out. So if there's anything that you want to add on that, I would like to give you the opportunity. But one thing that we also got a question about in the emails beforehand, um, and this is, can go for you as well, Desta, we got a question that says, everybody on this panel holds a position of relative power. How will they hold, how will they use their own position to challenge not merely the concept of health inequities, but specific institutions that hold power but do not show true solidarity? And here I wanted to bring up a question um, related to another um, bunch of messages that we got about the Africa CDC and the question, the meetings that they were hosting with pharmaceutical companies. Some people have said to us, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are partners and obviously Africa CDC must host meetings with them. There was a meeting a few weeks ago where Moderna had used um, the Africa CDC um, uh, letterhead, you know, to, to announce their meeting. And I got a raft of messages from civil society representatives saying, what is going on? How can Moderna be using the Africa CDC letterhead to announce its meeting? Some people said, you know, their partner, Africa CDC needs to engage with them. And other people said Moderna has given hardly any vaccines to Africa, has refused to share any of its, uh, of its intellectual property and, and know-how. So how are we looking ridiculous now as Africans by claiming that these people are partners and bringing them to our table? So I would just like you to build on any of that, you know, either how are we ourselves as people in positions of relative power really making a concrete difference? And two, how do we balance this question of, you know, these groups are partners, we must engage with them, but at the same time, do we look ridiculous when we're inviting them to our table, when they are, when they are giving us our scraps and we're supposed to go to the airport at 2 a.m. to to look excited to receive their, their vaccines? Go ahead, please. Yes, the, the uncomfortable truth. I've, I've, I wanted to post a paper in the chat box and I would um, encourage people to read it if you get time. And it's a paper that says the uses of knowledge in global health. And it's by somebody I admire a lot, Shea Bimbola, who is also shaking tables in his own way as the editor of um, um, Lancet Global Health, I think, BMJ Global Health. So what Shea says is that um, when you think about the global system for knowledge as it exists, so that's the system where research is done and research is published and lots of products come out of research. Almost 70% of that knowledge is produced for the sole purpose of being cited by people producing other knowledge. So majority of 70% of papers which are published, they, they only get cited by other people who are also publishing papers. So it's like uh, knowledge is circulating somewhere above ground and a lot of money goes into producing that knowledge. So it serves no other purpose other than I'll cite it and I'll cite myself and my friends will cite it and other people cite it. Then they'll produce papers which are cited by others. So it's just cite, 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 you know, and the knowledge keeps on circulating around that. A lot of knowledge, that's what it does. Then the remaining knowledge, um, we direct it towards um, what he calls engineers. And these are policymakers. So we work with government, we try to supply, you know, evidence of certain things, and then they use it for things that they don't use it at all. 
and we neglect what he calls uh, the plumbers and the activists. So these the plumbers now are the community health worker on the ground. They are the the doctor, you know, in an emergency um, unit. They are the head of a, a facility somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Those are the plumbers. They are on the ground and they are they are doing things on a daily basis that result into the things that we see when we do our you know national surveys and all that. But hardly is any research and evidence directed at the people on the ground. And then you talked about the activists. Now who are the advocates? You know, the people who are on the streets, you know, the civil society, um, you know, initiatives like the one that has organized this. We do research, but we don't work with them to see what they can use that research for. So majority of the evidence the knowledge system produces is for the sole purpose of being. It doesn't, it doesn't do a lot to advance humanity, solve society problems. It is floating up there. So I think that's a truth that we need to confront as scientists and as global health practitioners that we need to see what is the value for what we do beyond adding citations you know, on our credentials. And so, and so that, that requires a different way of looking at things. And that goes to the question about our own power. You know, every time I sit into these debates around decolonization, I, I recognize that there's a danger that um, even me, having, uh, being a product of the system, there's a danger that um, the things that I, I want to stop uh, in terms of the North-South relationships, I sort of perpetuate them in the way I engage with other actors, you know, in the system, whether it is with communities, whether it is with um, practitioners, whether it is civil society, that I still retain that sort of supremacy and still the colonial approach where, um, you, you know, I value my experience and so what I say, what I know um, sort of takes precedence over everyone else's lived experience and, you know, other forms of knowledge. So for me, that's something which preoccupies me. And um, my contribution to this whole debate is about how us as African leaders don't perpetuate colonial practice in the way we exercise power, you know, with other communities and other actors in the system. I think that's something which is um, which, which is something that we need to 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 deal with. Now, um, the last question was about. Um, sorry, if you can, if you, if you could remind me, I wrote it. I wrote it in oh. shorthand. Yeah, that, you know, so the last question is um, about bringing these people to the table. And but before we go to that, maybe if you can hold that thought, Dr. Catherine and Desta, I'll go to you maybe to expand on this question of how do we use our own power to kind of dismantle the systems, you know, these tables that we sit at, how do we build real solidarity, even recognizing, as Dr. Catherine has said, that we are in a way privileged by being at these tables and in these discussions? So you just said a word, you said we are privileged. And actually, my viewpoint is different. I think that the tables that have pulled up a seat for us are privileged to have our perspective, which may be different from theirs at the table, because it gives that knowledge of our lived experience, it brings it into play where it wasn't before. So, um, you know, I would hope that the acknowledgement that the value we bring is already there. Um, and I don't necessarily see it as a privilege. I, I, I think it's important for those of us who are sitting in um, uh, around tables or in circles where maybe many others don't have access to. I think we have a responsibility to be truthful. And in my view, that should guide the way we work and the priorities or the things we prioritize and also the fights that we fight 
right? So if um, you said earlier that uh, Catherine tells people off without really telling people, making people unhappy, and, and, and that's the way, what she should do. That's our job. Our job is really to say, we finally made it around this table and we're going to give you an understanding of what some of the challenges are and what, the, what our perspective, based on our lived experience, what the solutions could be and what you need to acknowledge. Um, and this happens not just in healthcare, it happens in education, it happens in, in every um, sector. Uh, it happens to many of us who have lived uh, as a diaspora abroad. Uh, I, I don't know where you are, Maaza, but I'm sure you experienced it as well. You know, it is not a privilege to be in a certain place uh, just for us. It's a privilege for everyone around that circle. And so my view is stand for the truth. Uh, and don't buckle back. Um, if you see injustice, you have a responsibility to speak about it. This is what we teach our kids. There's no reason why we don't do it ourselves. And so my view is, you know, speak about the injustices that you see. Uh, and if you have solutions, come to the table with solutions. And if you don't, uh, study and bring on partners that have solutions that, that can work for those uh, situations. So uh, that's, that's the way I, I view it. Thank you so much. So now I would like to build in that question that we received about um, Moderna and others being invited to Africa CDC, maybe to talk a little bit about your perception of, you know, Africa CDC has really taken the lead in a lot of the, the COVID-19 vac um, vaccine inequity or COVID-19 response with WHO Afro as well. So I just wanted to get your sense generally, obviously there is a change at the head of Africa CDC. How do you see that affecting African solidarity going forward or just the leadership on this response and maybe built into that? And I'll start with you, Dr. Catherine, this question of, you know, why are these pharmaceutical companies that have really let us down being invited to the table as if they are real partners? So as I said, we got two different pieces of feedback from that. Some people said, we must invite them, you know, they are partners, we must have them at the table. And other civil society representatives were really, um, really disappointed by, um, you know, Moderna being invited to Africa CDC with the Africa CDC letterhead, et cetera, to present its data. And they were presenting data on boosters and vaccines for adolescents, things that were not even available in Africa, especially from the Moderna side, given that they've given so few vaccines. So just generally, you know, whichever way you want to start, whether it's about Africa CDC more broadly, and then focusing on, in on this fine balancing act that a group like that must, must, you know, the dance that they must dance to kind of work with all parties. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Africa CDC is one of my, you know, stellar <laughs> breakout stars, I think, of the pandemic, because uh, it was an entity that was trying to find its feet, and then uh, a pandemic hit, and it really rose up to the occasion. Um, and perhaps maybe that's what it needed to shake it up so that it can, um, you know, fulfill its, its potential. I mean, it's done, um, at least from where I see it, it's done um, amazingly well. Now, the issue about Moderna, uh, of course, without understanding all the circumstances about how the invitation started, how the meeting went, um, I think I, I, I would say that it's important to connect with different actors in, this, in the system. And then the fact that you connect doesn't mean that you, you know, capitulate or that you, you know, you, you do things that are maybe not aligned with the vision that uh, Africa CDC has. So I think it's important. Yes, let's meet. Let's hear what you have to say. And then going back to what Dester said, that once you're on these tables, you need to say the truth. So I hope that they said the truth. 
because um, otherwise, I think that that would be a shame or a missed opportunity. So it's good. Let's connect, meet, discuss, and then at some at the end of the discussion, you can say we are not aligned. Um, you know, our visions are sort of different, and we don't see a partnership emerging out of this. I think what would be problematic is if in a few a few months down the line, we hear a partnership between Moderna and Africa CDC that maybe is a contradiction to some of the things Africa CDC has been fighting for, maybe undermine some of the things Africa CDC is trying to do. That is catipulation. And so a meeting does not, should not necessarily lead to that. But if it does, I think that's where I would be justified to be critical. But I wanted to emphasize a few of the points that um, uh, Desta mentioned, and that's one of them, that when you have the opportunity, you know, say the truth because I think all of us have that inner voice. I I do, I hope everyone does. Where something does not sound right. And um, if something doesn't sound right, I think it should be communicated that this is not right. Uh, you know, how it's communicated and what and all that. It's not easy to, you know, put yourself out there and um, and say some things which are uncomfortable, but it's not um I think once you get the hang of it, then it's it's okay because you know that what you're doing is the small voice that is um, guiding the things that need to be said. And then linked to that, I think, is the Africa voice. Because um, the more Africans that say these things, um, there are things which we think they, that they are obvious, but the world, that some, of, some, of, some part of the world don't know this. So it's when you give an interview, it's when you, you, know, you give a tweet, and then some people say, oh my God, this is what's happening in Kenya. So as Africans, as I've said, those things that prick your conscience, like say them, and there's no penalty, really. And I think there are rewards. So um, the rewards, I think, are greater than the penalties that are out there. So let's let's have this collective voice that calls out injustice when we see it. Um, if it's hard, you try baby steps until I think you reach a point where it's it should be comfortable because you're you're confident in the fact that you're doing the right thing. Thank you. And I think you know the fact the amount of excitement that we got about you being on this panel is a sign that you're you're doing it right because you know I think nobody would argue that you don't ruffle feathers you do but people said she does it in such a, a special way that people leave that meeting not realizing that they've been called to order but still changing what they're doing is when they go forward so it's you're, it's clear that you're doing a great job at this um, Desta, I wanted to come to you about Africa CDC. I know that Dr. Gitinji has a role at Africa CDC as well. I don't want to put you on the spot to speak for him and his vision for leadership going forward, but does AMREF have any hopes, concerns about what will happen at Africa CDC when leadership changes and any thoughts about your relationship as AMREF with them? Um, well, first of all, let me just say, as Catherine said, Africa CDC was formed and then COVID came, right? I think that we were very, very fortunate to have John Kingasong leading Africa CDC. He has been an incredible um, uh, partner to many, many organizations, including AMREF. He has really led this uh, COVID uh, response uh, quite effectively. So uh, his shoes are very big shoes to fill. Um, that's as much as I can say about that. And not, uh, not being uh, privy to who will fill that role, I think that he really lives the legacy uh, of action that uh, you know, was much needed on the continent. So that's as much as I can say there. Uh, with respect to the other question that you asked on Moderna, do we know why Moderna was there? No. Uh, so it's really hard to speculate. And, you know, frankly, Maz, I feel like 
sometimes we get wind of little uh, information and uh, you know media is not known to cover everything uh, holistically and uh, from all angles so it would be really hard to um, comment on a meeting that we're not really aware of uh, and as Catherine said earlier and what I believe is that when you are working Towards bigger goals, you look at all the partners. And in Africa, private sector really plays a significant part in the delivery of healthcare uh, and providing health services. So um, there is merit to have uh, private sector partners meet with the public sector or government or NGO, et cetera. Um, but in this case, I, I really am not uh, in a position to really uh, speak about that. Okay, thank you, Desta. So we're almost, we have about um, 14 minutes left. So I think we need to sort of move to the end. We have a question here from Ravi um, from People's Health Movement, um, who's asking, with all of this then, how can African researchers and civil society move our governments to adopt a multilateral solidarity-based approach? So Desta, I'll start with you. Just your, this is kind of like as we build to wrapping up, especially in a continent as diverse as ours. As I said, you know, the people who are here in this group are well aware of the 54 countries across the continents, the 1.3 billion people. But, you know, just generally in a continent that is as diverse as ours, how can we then, with everything that's been said, you know, with the goal of this panel and this webinar to really focus on African solidarity as the response to this pandemic and this inequity, how can African researchers and civil society move meaningfully, I would add, our governments and adopt a multilateral solidarity-based approach? Well, that's a very, uh, Ravi asked that question. I know, I know he was making it hard for us, but um, I think, <laughs> I think, um, uh, you know, solidarity starts with um, working together, right? So in as much as we can convene, uh, have collective convenings uh, on the continent with our partners in, in you know, civil society, government, research institutions. I think that would be the first thing. There are already pre-existing convenings that we can actually um, work with. There are a number of organizations that do different convenings. Ours certainly is one of them. We do the Africa Health Agenda. Uh, international conference, we can certainly look for space and, and uh, platform there to really talk about solidarity. And there are many more. The WHO has it. Africa CDC is currently right now. Sophia is running uh, as their first public health convening. I'm sure there are a number of research convenings as well. So I would say that um, pushing this concept out, this uh, uh, solidarity concept out, uh, joining uh, different existing already uh, uh, events or, you know, join our campaign, you know, as the Africa solidarity team and get, you know, so let's link up on messages, partner around key things and key issues. So, and, and there are many that are taking place around the pandemic in, in, in Africa. So Ravi, I would say, you know, have the solidarity movement part of the um, injustice campaign uh, as one of its many things that it would do, but also participate in convenings, uh, research and uh, sessions, uh, other uh, regional convenings and bring the message out there. I think that's one way to gain visibility first. Great, thank you, Desta. 
So now the same question to you, Dr. Catherine, as we sort of move towards wrapping up this, this session in such a large and diverse continent, how can African researchers and civil society meaningfully move our governments to adopt a multilateral solidarity-based approach? Yes, I think what I'll say is that um, we need to recognize that this is, this is a marathon and there are so many aspects to it. And it's not just what one institution does or what one sector does, because the system really, uh, the ramifications of the system, the global system, they go beyond what research institutes experience and, and, and all that. So I think that's um, like be sober. This is, this is going to be hard. It's going to be long. But um, we also can't say that, oh, my God, this is so hard, so we can't do anything. We need to start from somewhere. And I'll, I'll still go back to the point I said earlier, that um, civil society has certain skills that academics and research institutions don't have. And so they, that's, the, like, that's the beginning point. And as um, scientists, as researchers, as academics, we need to first ask ourselves, why do we do what we do? And then recognize that the people who are more qualified, who have the mandate, who have the tools, uh, whose business it is to bring some things to, to light and then trying to make some movement and some, some action. And so partnering between academic institutions and civil society. So the partnerships could be within the same sector, maybe it's health or it could be across sectors. But I think that's the beginning point. That if we, if we don't, if you're, not, if you're not able to address that, then it's hard to see how you know, everything else is going to work. So from where I see it, I think it's possible to change the way we see the world as scientists or academics start making meaningful partnerships with people whose job it is or whose mandate it is to you know, make noise and advocate and do things that lead us somewhere. Because for us as scientists, we, we throw papers in the Lancet and then we think that somehow they're going to stick you know, to somebody's brain or something and then things are going to happen. So that is the beginning point. So the solidarity also starts even within the same sector. And then we can try to see how we expand um, outwards. So the more academic institutions that are able to partner uh, with civil society, with government, with grassroots, the more of that happens. And then the civil society are the ones who know how to do these things. So you tell us, okay, this, if you give us this piece of information, then, then this is what we could do with it. So that's, as I've said, we don't do research and throw it out there. We do research because it's going to lead us somewhere as part of a broader movement. And then, of course, what I said earlier about um, the, the awareness of Africans of our place in the system and the rejection of that place that has been assigned to us and um, knowing that we can do better for ourselves and that no one is going to do better for us. And so that awareness, um, you know, efforts that sort of make that something that most of us appreciate and most of us recognize, um, that's another beginning point. Now, what happens after that, um, of course, is a function of many things, but I think we need to start somewhere. We can't just say this is very hard and we can't, uh, dismantle the broken system that is global and entrenched, we can chip away at small things, um, you know, one thing at a time, and then maybe 10 years from now, we look back and say that we have a different world that is more just. Thank you so much. That is such a, a great and inspiring note to, to end on. Um, Marlies, I have just put a request to you in the chat. I hope you're still here. If you could put the Twitter handles for the various, oh, she's already done it. She's amazing. It's so great to collaborate with people who are so on top of, of everything all the time. So just as a reminder, this webinar is the third in a series. The first, which was led by Health Justice Initiative was on greed. The second was on divides within countries, which we've touched on a little bit today too. And now this third one has been on African solidarity. 
Um, it's been such an honor to finally meet you, Dr. Chibutungi. As I said, everyone is always so excited when your name comes up. So thank you for making the time to join us. And Desta, it's always a pleasure to be on with a fellow Ethiopian. So it's so nice to meet you. And hopefully we'll get to meet in person one day. Um, please, please, I put my email in the chat if you would like to join the People's Vaccine Alliance um, that it's a global alliance that's working on questions of vaccine inequity and fighting for people's vaccine. Please drop me an email. We have some global South solidarity brewing with colleagues in Latin America and the Caribbean, as well as in Asia. And AMREF is an active member of the, the People's Vaccine Alliance, as is the Health Justice Initiative. So it would be a pleasure to have you join us. I am so grateful to both of you. I really think that you've inspired us. I hope that we've answered most of the questions. It looks like we'll get five minute back five minutes back for the day. And I'm sure that you two have other webinars you've already lined up for the rest of the day today. So on that note, I really appreciate you. Thank you so much and please stay in touch. Mm -hmm.